I do think that how we are responding to the crisis is part of the crisis. And I don't think that we can solve the problems of corporate capitalism, imperialism, colonialism, ismism, ismism, all down the line with the same type of rushed, urgent mentality um, that created them in the first place. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Medicine Stories podcast, where we are remembering what it is to be human upon the earth. I am Amber Magnolia Hill, and this is episode 64, which happens to be one of my favorite numbers. And today I'm sharing my interview with one of my favorite people and fellow podcasters, Ayana Young. Oh, this is, this is a big one, of course. I am releasing this on October. Uh, March 19th, it looks like, in the, no, March 20th, oh, right on the spring equinox, and my friend Susie's birthday. Happy birthday, Suze. But right in the midst of coronavirus, self-quarantines, big unknown, big question mark, what the future holds. And when Ayana and I recorded this a few weeks ago, it wasn't what it is yet. That was in late February. It hadn't hit the States like it has. Everything has shifted in the cultural landscape since then. And yet, what we talk about and what Ayana focuses on in her work and in the For the Wild podcast is all related to this. And this is something that Stephen Herod Buner made me aware of when I first read his book, herbal antivirals, which I highly recommend. I've been recommending for years. Stephen was on episode eight of this podcast and we and we did talk about viral pandemics. We did talk about everything that's going on now, you know, two, two and a half years ago. So, and I hadn't realized until I read his work that viral pandemics are really a reflection of greater ecological instability. Uh, overpopulation, ecosystem disruption, deforestation, climate change, income inequality, fragile and non-local global supply chains, etc. They all intertwine and converge to create viral pandemics and or make them worse. And so these are all things that Ayana covers in her work so brilliantly. And I'm just feeling like the timing is so right with this episode coming out right now because folks are waking up, right? This is one of those moments in a species or a culture's history where everything changes and that's good, right? I mean that in a really good way. I saw a post on Instagram the other day. The the poster's name is just Holly. This is a new normal. It will not go back to the way it was. And that is a statement of hope. It's just exactly, exactly how I'm feeling. And and I hope you are too. Um, Another amazing post, this one was from someone named Gina Mayer on Facebook. Since the lockdown, Venice's canals have become crystal clear. Italy's coasts have dolphins coming nearer and nearer. Japan now has deer roaming free in the streets, and Thailand, the same with monkeys. China has record-breaking pollution cuts. 
The earth has already begun showing signs of amazing things that are happening from the absence of human pollution. What if, and hear me out, what if the entire human population used this as an opportunity to restart society on a greener, more environmentally conscious foot? What we're seeing in the span of a couple of days is amazing. And so as you'll hear in this interview, a few weeks ago, Ayana brought this idea to my attention that when we slow down, the earth slows down. And I truly thought she was speaking metaphorically when that sentence first came out of her mouth, but then she explained exactly what she means. And oh no, it is literally true. And we are seeing that right now through this pandemic. And it's so beautiful and it gives me so much hope and I I really am just so excited to share this interview with you um, you know I'm thinking about just what a huge question mark everything is right now and this liminal space that we're all in together and really like we're all in it together this is truly the most I think unified that the collective global consciousness has ever been And while within that, there's a lot of different opinions and different conspiracy theories and misinformation, at the same time, paradoxically, at the same time, we're all living this big shared experience together, which is beautiful and, again, gives me hope. I I hope that we are realizing how interconnected we really all are and that it helps us to take some of the bigger threats like climate change facing us as a species and as a planet more seriously right now. Um, you know, in the in the outro to the episode with Charles Eisenstein, I spoke at length about human hubris and our um, seeming unwillingness to learn from the past and how we tend to think that we are just the peak, not only of all species on earth, but of our species, that we're the smartest and we're the most special humans who ever lived and we're superior. And, you know, those things that happened in the past, the great flu pandemic of 1918, which by the way, is much worse than this as far as fatality rate. Um, and even like the Dust Bowl, the Great Depression, wars, you know, we we think we're like above those or beyond those. And we're not. And in fact, we're more vulnerable today than any past generation because of the disharmony that we've created on the planet. If you would like to check out more of um, just my thoughts and what I'm really paying attention to through this coronavirus pandemic, I have a coronavirus highlight on Instagram. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Um, my Instagram name is mythic medicine and I'm just, you know, really consciously sharing things that I think are important right now. And a lot of those are focused, of course, on herbal medicine and staying well, but then also really focusing on these bigger themes of the lessons of this time and what we can do with those. Um, and if you're one of the many people interested in what's going on with our extra potent elderberry elixirs, you can imagine there's quite a high demand. We're doing our best to pump out new batches. Um, they're selling out in about three hours when we list them. And so really what I've decided, I'm not announcing it anymore um, through the newsletter or even through Instagram. Maybe I will at some point, but you just have to check out the website, mythicmedicine.love. 
click on the shop and you know you will be rewarded for going the extra trouble of actually getting to the website yourself um and that also kind of helps slow down the flow of sales and lets us stay on top of shipping which has been we've just been swamped um which i recognize is a very different economic financial place that we're in than a lot of people are right now um so we will continue to try to get new batches of elderberry elixir out and when those are sold out we do have um, elderberry tincture and we have mushroom medicines and herbal body oils for your nervous system and you know hopefully you're really focusing on food mostly um and i've been posting about that you know the kind of foods that we are looking at that we are that we are consuming right now and the kind of foods we are not consuming right now um so this that those are also in highlights um patreon for this episode bless ayana and the for the wild team for offering three different goodies for the patrons at patreon.com slash medicine stories these of course are all available at the two dollar a month level they are offerings that were first given to the for the wild patreon community so check out their patreon as well it's beautiful as is their podcast the first is a bonus clip from one of their favorite episodes with Donna Haraway, which aired last summer. That episode was entitled On Staying with the Trouble. Um, so this is a 10-minute bonus from that, and it it's amazing. She's an amazing woman, and I feel super honored to be able to share her extra ideas with you all. The second bonus, these are all going to be in the same post there on Patreon, is a transcript from another remarkable episode. This is probably my favorite episode For the Wild has ever done. It's with Dr. Bio Akomalafe. The episode is called Slowing Down in Urgent Times. And so you just like have to listen to that. And then as I've spoken about before on this podcast, I really enjoy taking in ideas that are important to me in multiple ways. So being able to listen to that podcast and then also read this transcript is such a gift. And on that note, I have somehow never shared that we have transcripts available now for about half of the Medicine Stories episodes, uh, mostly, you know, the later half, but a few from the early days have already been transcribed, such as episode eight with Stephen Herod Buner because it's been so popular. A um, lovely woman named Megan has been doing an incredible job transcribing. Um, so yeah, they're at the website mythicmedicine.love, you know, in with each different episode's post. And the third offering there at patreon.com slash medicine stories is a link to their exclusive for the wild moon phase playlist. This is number four. It is a soulful and atmospheric monthly music playlist curated by their music supervisor, Carter Lou McElroy, and I am really, really enjoying it. I'm not just saying that. It's perfect for these self-quarantine times, and um, I do not do a great job of seeking out new music on my own. Mostly, I listen to what my 13-year-old is listening to as far as new music, but this is uh, much more my vibe. <laughs> so those are all there. And I know so many of you deeply adore and admire Ayana, and those of you who don't already are about to. Um, so it's really an honor to have an opportunity to get some of her personal medicine stories, you know, get beyond her work in the world and her 
brilliance as an interviewer on her podcast and get a little deeper. Uh, Ayana Young is a podcast and radio personality specializing in intersectional, environmental, and social justice, deep ecology, and land-based restoration. Graduating summa cum laude with an undergraduate degree from Loyola Marymount University, including a double major in art history and theology, and a minor in philosophy, as well as education through Columbia University in ecology and Eastern religions and restoration ecology at the University of Victoria, Young has a strong academic background at the intersections of ecology, culture, and spirituality. She was studying at Columbia when Occupy Wall Street movement began, and amid the burgeoning resistance in Zuccotti Park, she co-created the Environmental Working Group. Post-graduation, dividends from her early career allowed Young to conserve 500 acres of coast redwood and salmon habitat in Northern California, where she has been living for over five years. Living for the first years in a tent with no electricity or running water, while she established a homestead and broke ground on a native species nursery and research center, including the establishment of the One Million Redwoods Project, which was acclaimed as the most backed farm project in Kickstarter history. A budding filmmaker, Young is no stranger to the medium, having spent her childhood as a prolific working actor, working alongside the likes of Steven Spielberg and Meryl Streep. Young's debut film, When Old Growth Ends, is an ode to the complex interweaving of the irreplaceable Tongass National Forest during its last stand as a distinctly wild place in southeast Alaska. As director, producer, narrator, and featured cast member of the film, Young wore many hats in midwifing this compelling and poetic story of struggle and beauty surrounding the Tongass National Forest. Young leans into her vast experience on the other side of the camera, along with her intersectional approach to ecological restoration, to guide her process as the founder and executive director of Millennial Media Organization and nonprofit For the Wild. Learning deeply from the critical dialogue she's shared with over a hundred guests on the For the Wild podcast, including Chris Hedges, Sylvia Earle, Vandana Shiva, Jill Stein, Winona LaDuke, Terry Tempest Williams, and other thought leaders including some of the brightest activists, political thinkers, and scientific minds of our time, Young approaches her mission with For the Wild with critical thinking, deep reverence, and artistry. And then a little paragraph here about the podcast. At For the Wild, we discuss the critical ideas of our time and parlay them into action for the defense and regeneration of natural communities. Key topics include the rediscovery of wild nature, ecological renewal and resistance, and healing from the trauma of individualistic society. Join host Ayana Young as we travel deep into ancient forests, align with the struggles and ways of earth-based people, and rekindle the mysteries of intuition. We will join today's brightest visionaries in this momentous work of reimagining a world where humanity can find its way back into the web of life. This is the work of our times, y'all, you know, to reweave the connections that previous generations of humans and settler colonialism and toxic capitalism have destroyed connections with one another, other species, and the earth. We are not meant to be zombie consumers brainwashed by the television. Seriously, please, please get rid of your TV 
And this slowing down that is being forced upon us right now is just such an amazing opportunity. Oh, so Ayana and I both live in the woods. She lives like way deep in the forest. Um, and so the connection was a little shaky. By the time you hear this, my genius sound guy, Matt, will have cleaned it up a little bit, but it, it's still probably going to be imperfect, but that's okay. We embrace imperfection on the Medicine Stories podcast. And one final note is that this week, I am a part of a really, really beautiful new offering called Matriarch Collective. You can go behind the scenes with 29 world-renowned women leaders and visionaries. We'll dive deep into entrepreneurship, conscious parenting, ancestral healing, sacred sexuality, ritual design, herbalism, photography, abundance mindset, food as medicine, and more. So Matriarch Collective is a virtual village and mastermind community for women creators created by Katya Nova of Nurturing Novas and the Honey Talks podcast. Uh, It's kicking off with an incredible week of inspiring talks, giveaways, and surprises on March 24th, and you can join for free from anywhere. I will, of course, have the link down in my show notes. Um, My interview with Katya is entitled, From Plant Allies to Podcast and Patreon, How to Reconnect with the Innate Earth Wisdom that Lives in Your Bones and Build a Brand on Your Terms. So this is the most honest behind-the-scenes look at my business that I've ever given. Um, I cry twice throughout the interview. It was really, really potent and beautiful. My um, my usual right side pain pattern was activated when we started, and by the end it had completely disappeared. Just sitting in this beautiful two-person community with this woman and diving deep into these topics, we get into so much more than what it says in that in that title as well, a lot of ancestral healing and matrilineal connections and pelvic healing and so much more. Um, and at the end of that interview, I share the one thought, the one thought that has been an anchor for me during this time when I start to get panicky or sort of start to spin out in fear. Um, this thought has been keeping me grounded. There are three other women who have been guests on this show that are a part of Matriarch Collective, whose exclusive interviews you can see and hear there. Rochelle Garcia-Saliga, her talk is called A Matriarch's Rites of Passage, Emerge Empowered and Exalted. Yaya Erin Rivera Merriman, Plant Spirit Medicine for Challenging Times from a Kitchen Witch and Taino Priestess, Artist, and Mother. And Emily Saldea, Matriarchy in Action, Why Living and Birthing in Your Power is the Most Dangerous Thing You Can Do. Also, one upcoming podcast guest, Nadine Artemis, Your Mighty Microbiome, The Vibrational Medicine of Plants and Renegade Beauty Secrets from a Modern Day Matriarch. Oh, and there's many more, what, 25 more talks than that and all sorts of categories of interest um you know it's just something I really learned from my first teacher Cammie McBride who's been on three previous episodes of this podcast is that when women gather magic happens and like truly this is much needed medicine in these 
unprecedented times of social distancing and uncertainty. So instead of panic, let's make a conscious decision to grow and lift each other up. And, you know, since you're self-quarantined at home anyway, um, here is something free that you can do to fill up your time with something positive. Um, again, join for free from anywhere. And the link for Matriarch Collective will be in the show notes. I know this was a very long intro. Thank you for sticking with me. Um, I really just have so much love for all of you and for every being on the planet right now. And um, just we're all learning and growing together in this moment. And I find a lot of beauty and hope in that. So without further ado, let's listen to this interview with Ayana Young. Okay, hi Ayana, welcome to Medicine Stories. Hi Amber, it is so, so good to be here with you and see you and just be present with you. I'm so glad we're doing this. I'm feeling the same. It's been years since we've been together in the physical, like 2016, I think, probably at Spirit Weavers. And yeah, then the year before right. as well, we, we met in person for the first time the year before. Um, and I think we first connected on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I'm feeling little, uh, little pins and needles about that time. When I think back Aww. to meeting you, it was such a transitional time in life. And yeah, it's, it's crazy to think of all the things that have happened since then. <laughs> yeah. You were really, you've, um, you've grown so much in your offerings to the world and what you're doing since then. But I mean, that seed was so strong back then too, you know, your vitality and passion and like what you were going to do were so obvious. Um, so I was thinking, and I've always thought this, you know, spending those many weeks with you over those two years was really fun. Um, you're really joyful and like, effervescent person that I'm not sure that always comes through in your podcast because you're so damn intelligent and you know the podcast like the questions you're just so well spoken and like even keeled but you have this like beautiful again effervescence about you that um is so lovely to see in a person a lot of us are missing that or left it behind in childhood I think um so I've always wondered like about your childhood and how you how you grew up was there anything in your childhood that predicted what you'd be doing now and like yeah just you know the general tell us about your path question well thank you for saying that that I was effervescent and um and I do feel like I'm still a very passionate person but there are times that I don't feel as bubbly as I'd like to just the heaviness and the day-to-day bs and so on a day like today, it feels really good to hear that reflection and tap back into those other parts of myself. Because I feel like, you know, just as everybody else, we all have however many millions of facets of who we are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, and gosh, the childhood questions, there's so much there. But I didn't, I definitely was not raised to be an activist or to be a earth defender or to even be a plant person or (laughs) dot, 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 any of the things that I feel really connected to who I am today. It wasn't the way I was raised. I was definitely raised to be ambitious and to be 
strong and to be able to communicate and connect with people. And I think that there are little strings of my childhood that I see have prepared me for being able to do the podcast and being able to do the Redwoods project. And I think I remember thinking back to these memories of my mom when we'd be going on our um, adventures together and she'd always tell me to push my believe button. She'd be like, take a deep breath and just push your believe button and have the confidence that you will be able to do it. And I think that part of my childhood really stuck with me because even when I've been so nervous to do things that I've never done before, like the pod, honestly, everything I've done up until this point that people know me for, these are all things that I really just leapt into complete uncertainty and faith. And there was no rule book. There was no guidebook. There was really not a lot to ground myself on other than that inner confidence that I think my childhood and really my mom instilled in me. Um, but yeah, so I definitely not activist nature background, but I always did have a feeling that there was something else out there that was calling me and that consumer capitalism was not right and it did not feel good. And it was intuitional. It was like a, I remember feeling lethargic a lot as a child when I was kind of in the endless suburbs of Southern California and feeling, yeah, claustrophobic, claustrophobic, lethargic, like a, a lack of deep, deep connection. And I am a very intensely connective person. I was with a friend the other day and I think they may have said that I was emotional. And I was like, wait, I am? And then I almost laughed at myself. I'm like, of course, I'm a highly emotional person, but I never really think of myself like that. But I think for those of us who are highly emotional, when we're in environments so disconnected from intimacy and community and the earth, it feels like crap. And so I always did kind of have this underlying feeling of, there has to be something else than this life that I see around me. And so I've been a real um, truth seeker. I've been, I've had, you know, I have these rebellious revolutionary sides of me that I always fed and I never, I never shied away from going against the grain or being outspoken or just, going for what I believed in. And I, and I think in indirect ways, my childhood has helped me do that. So that's a little bit, I know, I know really broad, but yeah. Push the believe button. That's amazing. I'm never going to forget that now. And that is what you have to do. You know, when you're, when you're building something, you just have to pretend like, you know what you're doing and push forward. (laughs) Believe. Yeah. That's Mm -hmm. beautiful. And so I know at some point in um, 2011, I would suspect you were at Occupy. Like what, what drove you there and how has your work since then grown from then? Was that kind of like your initiation into a sort of activist life? Yeah, well, I would say in my high school years, and I went to a performing arts high school. So in terms of also having a type of confidence to perform, I was I've been trained for really my whole life in that type of 
push your believe button, go on stage and sing or do something silly and just be okay with whatever happens and kind of get into that. What are they, how we used to call it something um, when you, the zone, yeah, getting into that zone. And I think we all kind of know that feeling inside of us. And so I, in high school, as I was doing the performing arts stuff and I had a lot of, I feel really grateful for that time because I had a lot of friends that were also pushing the boundaries of the conventional high school way of being, you know, a lot, a lot of us were just wild and out of the closet at a very young age and, and really uh, feeling safe to be our nutty selves in front of each other. And so there was one friend, Lorna, who we would hang out after school because we rode the bus together and we'd go home and we'd uh, watch Michael Moore documentaries and supersize me. And um, we would look at ad busters together. And that was kind of the moment where I started to feel those little openings of like, wow, the world is really effed up. And I'm really interested into this not that I'm into the world being effed up but I'm into being angry about it I'm into being pissed off about what's happening and her and I I remember gosh this was probably when I was yeah I was 16 because I had just gotten my driver's license and we were driving around this little neighborhood that we lived in and there was two guys on the bus stop and I rolled down my window and but now this is during the I gosh this was the first Bush Cheney elections and so the, you know, every, there was, you know, it was a, it was a intense time in the country with the presidential elections, which it will be again soon. Mm -hmm. And I rolled out my window and I said, Hey, you guys into, or I said, Hey, you guys like Bush. And I just did not even realize how that sounded. That's not, you know, it could be, could be taken a few different ways. And Hey, you guys like Bush. And then they're like, what? And I'm like, you're like, are you into president or whatever? And I said, and they're like, no. And I'm like, okay, get in the car. And so then me and Lorna and these two random dudes were going around uh, stealing Bush Cheney signs off people's lawns. And then we had this big bonfire where actually the cops came up, but luckily we kind of hid the signs um, in the sand before they saw what we were doing. But, you know, th that's just like a little memory from the beginning of, who I have grown into being and it and then I'd say like since those years in high school I still followed those threads but when I went to undergrad I was studying philosophy and art history and theology I thought I was going to keep studying some type of performance art or theatrical something or other but I really didn't want to do that I was I I have a very curious mind and I'm constantly I'm a researcher. I'm a digger. I'm like, I, I can't get enough. And not even to say like, I'm looking for answers or I'm looking for solutions. Cause that's not even that I'm actually just really curious about life. And so I was in undergrad and I was super fascinated with religion, which I never, I'd grown up really secular. We didn't celebrate any holidays other than just the consumer part of it. Um, and, and I'd never really studied art or philosophy in those ways. And so even though I was studying things that weren't about activism or weren't about the environment, I was able to understand the humanities through this other lens, which was like through this revolutionary lens. And I would, I remember when I was studying um, art history of, you know, let's say Italy. And I was like, oh my gosh, like it took all of the old growth forest of Europe 
to create these monuments? And was this really worth it? Was it really worth worth having the 16th chaps, whatever the chapels or the big, you know, gosh, I don't even remember all the building names. And I'm like, was this worth taking down all the mountains for to have these relics of the past? And so there was these, these deeper questions that would come up. And, and even in the art market, I was like, this is, you know, the art market is this big fetishized consumer capitalist model that some people get to put their money in. And that's why those people happen to be in the museums. It's not because they were the best artists. It was because this was a system. This was a corrupt system, even back then and even now. And who gets to be on the walls and who doesn't? And so even when I was studying the humanities, I was still always questioning why, why, why? And how was this creating suffering in other parts of the world? And then um, I had graduated and I was really confused on life. And I was like, you know, I want to study environmental science. And so by a real fluke, I got into Columbia and I honestly don't know how. And so I was so happy because I got to go to New York City and all my musical theater friends were out there already. And so I started studying at Columbia. But honestly, I was so bored studying there. I was like, what the hell am I even learning? I'm like, this is not, we're not talking about intersectional justice. We're not talking about colonialism. Like, how are we even talking about environmental science if we're not talking about all these other things? This doesn't make sense. And I just kept sitting in these classrooms. And I also studied things like Buddhism and neuroscience. And I was studying things that seemed really interesting, but they weren't to me getting at the at the the core. They weren't getting at that like fiery ball that I needed to be touching all the time. And so um, Occupy started and I was like, whoa, what's this? This seems pretty, this seems interesting. And so I remember I got on my little bike with my dog, Mushy Bear, in my back basket. We were going through downtown Manhattan. And when I got to the Zuccotti Park, and this was in the first week, so it was pretty mellow still, and you could still really move around the park. And there was people, but it wasn't so jam-packed at that point. And I remember talking to people, and it honestly, Amber, it was the first time, except for my talks with Lorna, that I was actually with people who were as enraged and passionate and fiery and interested and curious about these things that had been, gosh, just burning inside of me all of these years. And I was like, oh my gosh, there are other people who want to talk about this thing, these things. Because before, anytime I would really bring up my anger of what was happening in the world, whether that was pollution or you know, whatever I thought of at the time, which definitely isn't as deep as what it is for me now. Um, I remember feeling like, oh, here comes Ayana, like the one who's going to be a bummer at the party or nobody really wanted to listen. My parents didn't want to listen. My family wasn't interested. So I didn't have people who were willing to sit with me for four hours and talk about industrialized farming and being so ramped up about it. So Occupy was this place where I felt so much of myself come alive because I felt seen and I felt like other people, I was seeing other people in our, in our essence and like what we actually really cared about other than what we were just sold to care about. And uh, yeah, it was a huge turning point and I miss it. You know, I miss that time. And, um, but I've tried to hold on to those. Like I never I want to I never want to lose that passion I never want to do the work for so long that I become immune to 
the eros of it. Mm. Have you read The Overstory? Oh my gosh, I have to read it now <laughs> because there's been some asking. I have to read that book. I haven't yeah. yet. Okay. Um, um, so the Eros, I'm glad you said that word because I was really intrigued a few months ago when you were posting about like feeling the erotic moving through you. And I know it's a thing that has been discussed on for the wild. And yeah, I want to hear more about that because so many people get tapped out, um, doing, the forms of activism that you're so engaged in, especially as like fully immersed in it as you are. Um, but you seem to have something that's that's keeping you afloat and keeping you going and keeping you in it. And would you, you know, connect that to this sense of Eros? Um, absolutely. I yeah, gosh, where do I even begin? Well, first of all, first of all, I do want to say that um, I do want to say that I have gotten burnt out. Like I'm not immune to feeling the exhaustion. I'm not immune to being overwhelmed, depressed, just completely on my knees in shock and horror and like. I I feel all that too. And I also at times feel completely hopeless. And, um, and so I do want people to know that because I don't think that anybody who seems like they got it all together has it all together. And I don't even think that's what it's all about. Um, And yeah, lately, even like the burnout has been so intense that I've had to shift the way that I have been working with this work. And um, because for a long time, I just didn't have a personal life. And I honestly was almost, um, I was almost proud of that. I was like, you know what? Like, it's great. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm just going to do this 100% of the time. And I don't need to have self-care. And I don't need to be happy. And I don't (laughs) need to have joy. And I don't need any things because I am just going to be a working machine because that's what I deserve because I'm a human who is effed up so much and I have so much shame and guilt and pain about it all that I'm just going to do nothing but this in a sense of like repenting for my sins of of who I am and how I am relating to this earth and for a while that did feed me and I had a type of energy that was shocking you know I didn't I can't even believe looking back at how much I was able to put out um and then at some point I just realized oh well I realized a lot of things about where we are with climate change and the Anthropocene and how we're not changing as a collective in the ways that I'd hoped we would have and um I also realized with the burnout like uh, you know, almost getting to the point where I'm, I, I don't want to say killing myself because that's over dramatic, but like getting, pushing myself so far, isn't necessarily going to bring the earth back. It's not going, like, it's not correlated with one another. I think hard work is important, but I, me burning myself out, it wasn't as if like, if I just burnt myself out, if I just worked hard enough, then the earth would be okay. 
And I really had to break that cycle in myself, whether it was savior mentality mixed with the guilt, shame mixed with just feeling so much grief about what was happening and not really allowing joy to come in. And then when I wrote that post about the erotic, I was feeling a lot of joy and it was amazing because there was like a turning, a turning, turning, <laughs> I was turning the page. Oh, it felt so good. I, I, I started to be more embodied and maybe I even started to be more aware of my sexual self and not that I wasn't, not that I didn't know of my sexual self, but it was more like there was a moment that I actually felt proud of it. I was like, yeah, you know what? I am erotic and I am sexual and I am full of these kinks and these, these all these things, the, all of these things make up me and all of these things allow me to do the work in the way that I do it. And even though I don't present those parts of myself often, they, I want to nurture them and I want to, uh, yeah, I want to, I want to be proud of all of those pieces and, and I think I've just also had a lot of friends who have been so confident and push, push their belief button in their sexual presence. And I was really getting off on their confidence of who they were in their embodied self that I was trying it on for size. And it felt great. And I really, I really loved that moment. Not that I feel that way at the moment now, but I loved feeling that a few months ago. And, um, and then to, to speak to the Eros piece, like, regardless of how burnt out I have felt over this December and January, um, the Eros never went away. It, it even like, and the Eros is what has been able to feed this fire inside of me that's allowed me to do anything that I've done. And it's something that is so primordial and so deep and so connected to something that I can't even describe. And it's so big and it's so, it's, it's as if the air, the overwhelm of the Eros is as big as the, as the overwhelm of the grief. Like it, it's the same type of bigness inside of me, this love, this fascination, this, gosh, it's, <laughs> um, it's amazing. It's amazing. And honestly, it's probably what, if not the thing I'm most grateful for, definitely one of the things I'm most grateful for about being alive is being able to feel this type of intense, uh, almost obsession with the earth and the land and, and craving, craving to be with the land all the time. Um, and so the arrows of that, it's like that feeling, what wouldn't you do for a lover? What wouldn't you do for your child or your parent or whoever that you're so in love with? What wouldn't you do for them? And that's how I feel for the earth. And, um, and I love it. I love working from that place. And I think it's precious. And I think it's precious, but it's not fragile. And I'm very grateful for that. It's not something that I've, I've felt fickle about ever since I decided to dive into the deep end of this work. There's never been a moment that I've hesitated or wondered like, but is this really what I should be doing? Or is this really what matters? Or 
I never have those questions about the essence of what I'm doing. Now, could I have I questioned like, is this system that I'm working on within this project work? <laughs> like, no, there's been a million ways I've rearranged up and down and all around with how I do what I'm doing. But um, that, yeah, that umbilical cord hasn't broke. It seems to me probably that the more we really trust the call and dive into like what our soul is telling us we're here to do, um, the stronger that erotic flow of energy through us will be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so do you get to spend, you know, I'm obviously you're spending like a ton of time on the computer you know, doing your interviews and like coordinating things and talking to people and in the technology space, like we all are, but are you also spending a lot of time with the land and on the land and just outdoors and like unplugging from everything and being with that, which you love and which you are dedicating your work to? (laughs) Oh goodness. This is a question I've been sitting with within myself, asking myself, am I spending too much time on the computer? And well, so yes, I'm definitely not spending enough time with the land and I'm spending too much time hooked in to technology world. And I would say that I even come up with, I I even come up against my addiction to the technology at this point. And I'm not scared of it, but I definitely am aware of my addiction to, like I was holding my phone the other day I was just holding it. I wasn't looking at it. I was literally just touching my phone. And I'm like, Ayana, don't touch your phone. Like, like do not touch it. Like, stop. Like, it, it was so weird. And I, and then I would just, I, it was the weird, it was just so strange how this comfort, it's like a blankie or something. Mm-hmm. Like, touching my phone is like holding my stuffed animal. And so, um, this is something that I'm really working on within myself because, with the work of For the Wild, not just the podcast, which of course there's a lot of computer time with that, but being the executive director of the nonprofit and managing all of the stuff. And there's so many stuff between the taxes and the emails and anybody who runs any type of business knows exactly what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's one create the creative product it's another thing to coordinate all of the pieces that go into the creation of the product whatever that is so it's been full on the computer time the phone time has been insane and it's funny because I live deep in the woods you know especially in comparison to this modern industrialized world I live pretty far out by today's standards and I live off the grid and I don't have a bathroom and I you know all of those things I don't have so in a way I'm like what the hell like I literally feel like I'm a person who lives in the city but I just happen to live in the woods with a bucket as a toilet but it's really (laughs) somewhere in San Francisco and I really had to start questioning that um and then with the one million redwoods project there was so much coordination and research and development that I felt like I wasn't, I wasn't connecting enough with the soil in my own fingernails. And I know that I can't do my work 
with the integrity that it needs to have if I'm not spending more time with the land. And so, um, you know, luckily there are things like I don't have electricity where I sleep. It's a little 120 square foot wagon and it's candlelit and it's amazing. But I still, but the horrible thing was is I used to not have cell phone service at all. And then I just happened to have LTE in one bar in my wagon. And I'm like, no, (laughs) here I go to my little, my little haven with no electricity, but somehow I have LTE in one bar. How? And so I, I, I had really had to tell myself, like, you don't get to be on the phone anymore. You have to put your phone on airplane mode because maybe I would justify and be like, oh, but I have to do these emails or I have to make sure this post about, you know, this protest is going out or I, I got to make sure that this person, and it was just like any excuse in the book, whether it was good <laughs> or worthy, it was still these reasons to keep me connected. And so um, I've had to hold some pretty strict boundaries with myself in 2020. This has been part of my kind of New Year's resolutions where I really had to set aside my week and say, okay, you know, like, I guess like I've had to create working hours, which I never did before. And I think for a lot of us who are creators outside of somebody else's nine to five boundaries, it's really hard to stop working because it's like life becomes work and where does it end and where does it begin? And so I really had to say, no, like I'm actually only going to work within these hours. And these days of the week, I don't do any computer work. And these days, these, this time of the day, I don't do computer work. And I can say that I, the amount of joy that I have been able to receive by having that spaciousness has been incredible. And I've also noticed that I'm not more productive if I'm always hooked in. It's not, and that was a real, um, that was something I had to break this, this belief system inside of me that. I would be more productive and I would be a better activist if I was hooked in 24 seven. And now I'm realizing that's not actually true. And I can get just as much done when I give myself a lot more spaciousness to be on the land and, and to be with the woods and to leave my phone behind. And, and, and I, and the last thing I'll say about this, cause I don't want to keep blubbering on too much is, I've had a lot of amazing conversations with people on the podcast and friends alike, like the episode of Bio Akumalafe on slowing down in urgent times, or even thinking back to my episode with Bronte Velez. Um, I don't know if it was on the pleasurable surrender of white supremacy or the necessity of beauty, but I, I remember talking to Bronte a lot as well about this as well, about this idea of slowing down. And I think I probably heard about that a few years ago, but I was like, no, 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 no. Like people, the people who are saying slow down, like they don't get it. Like, no, we are in urgent times. Like the earth is going down. Like we do not have time to slow down. And I really didn't believe that. And I have definitely changed my tune where I've been having these inputs from people that I love and trust and just been in deep conversation with it. And I do think that how we are responding to the crisis is part of the crisis. And I don't think that we can solve the problems of corporate capitalism, imperialism, colonialism, ismism, ismism, all down the line with the same type of rushed, urgent mentality um, that created them in the first place. And so I'm really trying to, in a revolutionary, subversive way, say, actually, no, instead of bulldozing ahead 
and and making things happen at any cost, whether that's through the Redwoods project, like with reforestation or the podcast or whatever, um, I'm going to keep my diligence. I'm going to keep being in sheer devotion and working really hard. But the way that I'm doing it and the uh, the ability to breathe slow and really make decisions that feel like they've been thought out and massaged is so much more, I think, productive in the long run. And also for the health of and the sanity of myself and everybody that I work with. So um, I don't know if I if I said that as clearly as I wanted to, but yeah. hopefully it just came across. Oh, I'm so glad that we went there. Um, this like true methodical medicinal slowing down has really been a lesson for me this past winter too. Um, it came through really strongly in the fall. I talked about it in an intro to this podcast. I don't remember which, but I truly realized like I have to slow the fuck down hard and like permanently, <laughs> you know, I'm, I was so stressed all the time. Yeah. Running my business, the podcast, the kids, and just this same thing. I feel, um, like I'm doing what I meant to be doing and there's a sense of urgency to like help as much as possible, you know? And so much of that means sitting on the computer. And I feel like I'm hearing this from a lot of people. Like this is really a collective lesson coming through on slowing down. And <clears throat> I haven't listened to that episode yet. Will you say the man's name again? The slowing yeah, down bio, podcast. And what yeah, was the I'm title? Slowing down in okay. Slowing I was looking down. at that. Yeah, sorry, there's a little delay in the Skype. I was looking at that today and I was like, oh, next on my queue is that episode, you know, and just even reading the description and just being given permission that it's okay, even with the urgency right now, it's okay and uh, necessary actually to do the slowing down. Thank you for bringing that through. And I can't wait to listen to that episode. So good. And I think too, when I think about slowing down and I, I think what turned me from being a belief or a non-believer to a believer in the slowing down part is that what I realized is that when we slow down, the earth slows down. The earth basically gets to relax if we slow down. And what I mean by that is if I'm doing a million things, usually those million things take resources to do each of those million things. Mm -hmm. And the faster I go, the more fuel I burn, mm -hmm. the farther I travel, the more that I, like, the internet, the electricity, the stuff, the stuff, the stuff. It's like, and then when I realized that, I was like, oh my gosh, if we all slowed down, if we all did less, bought less, traveled less, like less, 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 but more living, the earth will be able to be like, okay, because you don't need to keep mining me so much. If you don't need so much from me time to fulfill your stressed out life, then I won't be needing to give so much of my resources so that you can keep being stressed out about all the things you're doing. And I, that really, really just was a direct correlation that I felt so connected to. And so when I think about slowing down now, Yes, it's for my health. And it's also when I think about how does it correlate to the health of the earth? Um, because ultimately, we know at this point that the reason we're in the debacle of climate chaos and the Anthropocene 
is because we are done too much. <laughs> We've extracted too much. We've all, it, it's just too much. That, that's the bottom line. Um, if we didn't use as many resources, we wouldn't be extracting as many resources and we wouldn't be polluting as much and so on and so forth and, and down the line. And, and I think it's like slowing down, not doing as much. And it's also in a way not, um, not needing as many options or as many choices either. I mean, it all, it all comes together. It's like everything that we do is fueled by something that the earth gives us. And so I've really been just sitting with that. And in no way do I feel like I have perfected the slowing down or the lessening of my resource extraction, extractivism, or, um, you know, I, I think about it every day and I'm trying really hard to understand how I can be a modern human, how I can create work that matters and community, but with using a lot less resources. And um, yeah, it's a really deep question that I have yet to figure out, but I will keep you updated mm-hmm. when I, <laughs> if, when, and how I learned that. Yeah. Um, speaking of personal growth, <laughs> I was curious um, as a fellow podcaster. And so you having your podcast too, when we first connected was certainly inspirational to me. Do you remember what I asked you when we first met there in the Redwoods? <laughs> I remember you and I remember the trees around us. And I remember the general gist, but I don't remember the specific question. I'd love to hear it. I asked you how you got Stephen Harrod Buner on your podcast because I told you I I wanted to do one and I totally wanted him to be a guest. <laughs> and then when I started, I just asked him and he said yes. <laughs> he is so great. He is so great. Um, so I always, uh, definitely, you know, think of you when I think of the inception of me starting my podcast and feel that connection, that gratitude that, yeah, just you being like, I, you know, I just asked him and he came on. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so (laughs) I'm curious, like pushing the belief button, how has your approach to podcasting or even how has the podcast itself changed since you started? How has For the Wild evolved? Oh my gosh. So much change and evolution. Yeah. Well, at the beginning it was definitely a believe button pusher. I mean, there was, I had no skill in podcasting. I didn't even know what a podcast was when it was like six, six, seven years ago, I was like, it's a radio show on the internet, I think, but I don't even, I didn't even know what Podbean, I think I knew what iTunes was, but like, I was definitely as green as they come with production. And, you know, as you know, it, the production, there's so many pieces between getting the guests, coordinating the guests, looking for the guests, researching who they are, getting them to say yes, getting them to come on at a certain time and then the editing and the uploading and like, it's, it's a lot, it's a mm-hmm. lot of pieces and how involved was at the beginning. It was me in March and I would do all and March the was your partner back then, right? Whom you built the tiny house you live in out in the middle of the woods with. 
And so he was there at the inception of the podcast as well. I didn't realize that. Okay. Yeah. Well, so we were, how I even learned about podcasting was it was my first camping trip ever. March and I had met at Occupy Wall Street. We started the environmental solidarity working group together. We basically fell in love within 24 hours. It was passionate. It was intense. It was all of it, all those things. And he had lived in Peru for five years and I had wanted to go down to South America. And so as as Occupy got destroyed by Homeland Security, basically, meaning Zuccotti Park got like trashed and, you know, it just got taken down. Um, We decided to go to South America and travel uh, down through Patagonia. And Patagonia is quite wild. And here I am, first time camper in these wild places where we were on dirt roads for months. And we had these kind of like anarchist health end of the world apocalypse uh, podcast that at the time with these, uh, these, you know, white older dudes who were spewing their knowledge. And I was into it. I was really into it. And March and I would listen for hours because we were in the wilderness, going down dirt roads, there was no towns, there was no service, there was no radio. Um, and so I, we would just listen to hours upon hours of this stuff. And honestly, I would get really scared. I would just listen to all this horrible news about what was happening, and I was freaked out. And then when we came back stateside, um, we were driving across the country because Fukushima had happened, and we were living in Oregon. I was feeling so much fear of the cesium-137 coming down in the rain and just being contaminated by the nuclear fallout that we left for the East Coast. And as we were driving through Arizona, we were listening to one of these apocalyptic shows. And I I think they were like, call in or something. And I started dialing and I got on the phone and and Mark's like, who are you calling? And I'm like, I'm calling the Progressive Radio Network. He's like, wait, why are you calling them? I'm like, I'm like, because we should have a radio show. He's like, wait, wait, what are you talking about? Like, about what? I, I said, and then and then the guy, and then it, like, right, he's like, but, but. And then the guy's like, hello? And I'm like, hello. Uh, I'm Ariana Young, and I want to have a radio show. He's like, okay, about what? And the thing is, I knew that, that that network in particular didn't have a very young crowd. And so I was like, about millennials. And he's like, huh, okay. He's like, well, uh. You know, if you're going to be in New York City anytime, I'm like, well, actually, I'm driving to New York City right now. He's like, well, okay, well, you can come by on Tuesday and come in with your pitch sheet and, you know, we'll give you a shot. So honestly, like, that's how it started. Wow. And I went and I had my, like, I got a little dressed up and I went to the, what was the Upper West Side to their radio building and I had my all my little sheets and my paperwork and, and I did my little spiel and he was like, okay, this looks really interesting send me a show in a month and we'll see what we'll see we'll see what we can do and I was like I left I'm like oh my gosh Marsh they're gonna give us a show we just have to make a show in a month <laughs> and I probably say like that month was like some of the most intense like lots of fighting lots of frustration we didn't know anything I like we literally we were like what is a microphone <laughs> you know how do we plug it in like what do we record on and and I didn't know how to get a guess like I didn't there was nothing there was nothing that I had had figured out at that point so um, the funny thing was, is, you know, I ended up having to tell the guy, hey, we need a little more time, we need a little more time. And for about the, the next year and a half, this dude um, kept just leading me on and being like, oh, okay, well, you know, I'd send him something. He'd be like, well, we'll see if we can fit you in. And, and I kept trying. But what was so beautiful is because he never said 
know. Mm-hmm. I kept building the podcast, building the podcast, building the podcast, hope, hoping that they would pick it up. But in the meantime, as they didn't pick it up, I was just calling radio stations. I was, I was really looking for trends. Um, like I, I remember when I saw Charles Eisenstein's Sacred Economics video, and this was back in you know 2011, 12. And I was like, I need to get this guy on the show because I knew. I, I just had this sense, even with Joanna Macy, I didn't even know who she was, but I, I had seen an article and I was like, okay, this lady's important, and I kept having these intuitions about the people that I needed to have on. And so it was, yeah, it was March and I for the first few years. And then um, the thing is like March is um, I would say we're both artists, but he's the type of artist who doesn't like deadlines. And I'm the kind of artist who can deal with deadlines. And so at some point it was just like, okay, we cannot keep doing this as two people loving and fighting like cats and dogs trying to get this podcast out every week I needed to build a team and this was what like back in 2016-17 I remember putting a call out on Facebook being like I'm looking for my right hand woman and three people got back to me well maybe more but three people I ended up bringing on um and from there is how the For the Wild team started building and, you know, I didn't have the nonprofit in place and I didn't have, I really like, it was so, it was, yeah, it was so seat of the pants for so many years. And at this point, I have an incredible team that's able to support each other in all of the myriad of pieces of post-production or pre-production, production, post-production, social media, outreach, all of the stuff, website. And um, we meet together every week. And we discuss what themes are important, how we're going to represent material who, you know, I mean, gosh, it's, I could spend hours just talking about our process as a, as a team of how we get it done, but there's been so much evolution and growth. And I guess something that I feel extremely grateful for is through all the trials and tribulations and ups and downs and moments where I didn't think it could happen or I couldn't do it or somebody couldn't do it or whatever it was all of the real emotional roller coaster that's gone behind the production of it I'm really happy to be where I am now and feel extremely driven to still do it like I haven't gotten bored I've never been like oh you know what like I'm just over this this isn't that exciting anymore or you know I've asked enough people enough questions like I think I've I think I'm done like there's never been that moment there's still so many people that I want to talk to and themes that I haven't covered. And um, in a way, I feel like the podcast is the school that I never got to go to because I, I get to have all of this intersectional information with people that I respect so much. And I get to go exactly where I'm trying to go rather than kind of dealing with superfluous stuff that I don't care about. And so I'm totally obsessed with the podcast and I think it's only going to get better and stronger. And um, yeah, I'm looking forward to 2020. Yay. Uh, Yeah, I really paid attention to how it's evolved as someone who's either going to have to quit or grow her own team at some point. Um, But you guys do such a phenomenal job. I really encourage people to just head to your website if they haven't been there yet and just look at how beautifully like each episode is presented. And it's, it's like a delight to the senses really to take it in. Um, which is important because it is such that topics can be so challenging and heavy and sad. 
Um, so to even just like the aesthetics of the way you guys present, it brings me into like a still dropped down space that makes it easier for me to be there, you know? Um, uh, yeah, I could ask you questions about your podcast forever, but I'm not going to ask too many. Um, I mean, just from the like, you know, production point of view, which most people will not be interested in, but can you think of an interview or something that someone said in an interview that like really surprised you or, you know, I'm sure like every interview changes your life, but was there like a moment that someone said something that really just like turned your attention in a way Mm -hmm. or set you on a new path that you hadn't even dreamed of before? Well, definitely the bio episode on slowing down in urgent times, for sure. That's been one of my latest podcasts that has really affected me. But what I've also realized is that I'll have podcasts that I'll have done a year ago or months ago. And maybe at the time, I may have thought, oh, that's interesting. But I didn't really see how it's infiltrating my day to day. And then all of a sudden, I'll be talking about something and I'll be like, oh, oh, interesting. Like that was from this conversation on the podcast six months ago. And it's really actually embedded in me now. And so I'd say, honestly, every episode shapes me. It's even the episodes that I may not feel as connected to, there's still gems in there that kind of get me to see the world in a different way. And I always want to see, like how I kind of feel is, my devotion is unwavering, but I'm very flexible with how I understand things because I think I need to have a lot of flexibility in the way that I uh, connect to the issues that are happening in the world. And so I would say, yeah, the bio episode really struck with me, uh, stuck with me. The uh, Dr. Max Lebron on her episode on um it's, oh gosh, I'm forgetting the full title, but it's something about living in a plastic world. Mm-hmm. And she's a anti-colonial feminist marine scientist, marine plastic scientist. And because I have been so steeped in forestry and science through the One Million Redwoods Project, I've kind of, for the last few years, have gotten really... Um, really turned off by a lot of science. I'm like, what is this? What What is this? Who is paying for the study? And why is this what is being studied? And yeah. why is this even being uh, said as the thing that's real or true? Right. Like, why, is, why is this the this only... Is some person- right. Sorry, I, I think about this all the time recently, too. Why is this the only um, form of knowledge that we consider valid in our culture? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Aside from yeah, all absolutely. the corruption as well that can be there in the science. Oh, yeah. It's, and I just was getting really turned off but to Western science, even though I was trying to, in some ways, be a scientist or be within the scientific community. I was feeling so just turned off by the way, honestly, the human supremacy behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, the yeah, the kind of like it used to be the church, but now it's Western science. And, like that's the word. and You can't question the word because it's science mm-hmm. or something. I'm like, but we made this up. <laughs> we made science. You know, like we made this. This is this can be questioned. Um, and but Dr. Max Lieberon, the way that she goes about her scientific practice is so deep and so much integrity. 
also so much honesty. Like really, she's not trying to sell solutions. She's not trying to market her form of science because she's trying to get more funding for something that doesn't actually support communities. Like even the way that she connects with communities on what is actually being studied in their area. Like actually asking people what's important for you because you live here. So what's important for you to be studied or what's important for to be, you know, so I, I just, she really, uh, she was so wonderful. And the whole plastics debate is really up right now. I know a lot of people are questioning recycling at all. Like does recycling even matter? Is China even taking our recycling anymore? And something that she broke down for us that I really appreciated was, um, what is even plastics and how do they get recycled? And she was saying there's no, you know, there's not just one plastic. Like plastic doesn't, it, it, plastics, that's actually what it is because there's every plastic container or whatever, it's made up of all of these chemicals. Some of those chemicals are known and some of them are patented. So you don't even know what's in them. And then if you try to melt them all together, it's just going to create some weird blob because they don't all melt at the same time. They have all these different properties. And that to me, I was like, thank you. Thank you. I really needed to understand that because I was feeling really frustrated by just not understanding what the plastic problem really was. And, and even she talked about um, trying to clean up the oceans and, you know, she had, she had this really good metaphor because she was talking about, well, you know, if we were really going to try to clean up all the plastic in the ocean, I mean, one, it's it's seemingly nearly impossible and probably is to some level because just the amount of ships to get out to the middle of the ocean to try to get these plastics, it's, it's kind of an impossible feat. But she was saying we really have to go upstream. So she had gave this metaphor, if you have the bath and the bathtub is running over, do you grab the mop and start sweeping up? or mopping up the water that's on the floor or do you go and turn the tap off first so that the bathtub stops running over and then start cleaning it up and so I thought that was a really important point because it's like yeah we can try to clean up these plastics but if we're not stopping the production of plastics in the corporate global model it's like a mute point and so these are just some things that come up for me but honestly I could spew so much about so many of the interviews that um, that I've been able to do. And gosh, yeah, I'm, I'm just kind of racking my head at, oh, and then the other, the other person I'll mention, last person I'll mention right now is Dr. Kyle White on the colonial genesis of climate change. And I really was connected to what he was saying, especially around the environmental crisis, because for the, like the first few years of my work, I was really, I really believed that we would create solutions. I really believed that we could do things like, and I, and I thought it was more about the doing. I was like, okay, we got to do this. We got to do that. And we got to, it was very physical and it was very forward thinking. It was very linear. And what I realized is that the crisis that we're in is a spiritual crisis. The crisis that we're in is so much deeper than what can we do on the day-to-day level to curb our consumption? Now, of course, I think we should be doing those things. And yes, we should be investing in um, community-oriented support systems. But 
when I think about this crisis as a spiritual crisis, it really changes the way that I work within it. And so something that Dr. Kyle White was talking about, you know, we were kind of discussing how are we going to get out of this mess or what will it take for us to get out of this mess and this environmental, social unraveling. And he had said something like, it'll take as much time as it takes to build trust, consent, and reciprocity. Now, something like that. And I, that has completely shattered me and built me into another type of, uh, yeah, I feel so shifted and moved by that because we can keep mopping up the water, but until we build relationships and turn off that sink, you know, I'm kind of going back and I'm mixing the metaphors. Like it's, we're not going to really see the change that we need to see in order to protect what is left. And although it's not linear to build relationships, and I think that the consent and the trust and reciprocity part, I think why people don't try to do that and they just try to go solutions first is because it builds a lot. It actually takes a lot more time to build relationships and to build consent and trust with people. It's slow. It's not instant gratification. You don't get to be in control of it because it takes two to tango. And there's all of these things. So as like a, you know, dominant culture that we live in, that's very um, wanting to be in control and wanting just to be able to do what we want to do at all times and do it at our speed to be able to be like, oh, actually, this is going to take a long time and you're not in control of it. And you just have to keep coming humbly, humbly, humbly to the feet of these relationships. That is a complete different way of seeing um, how to relate to the situation. And I feel completely taken by that type of thought process at this point. And I still believe that we can be doing things. It's not to say that I think that we all need to just give up and stop planting trees or stop going zero waste or something like that. I think it all matters, but um, it only matters as much as we can reckon with the spiritual crisis and the disconnection that we have with each other, ourselves, and the earth. Mm. Yeah, just like um, the slowing down idea, the absolute necessity for getting back into community is something that just is coming up over and over. It was even the cover story of The the Atlantic this month was um, the nuclear family was a disaster or something like that. But it speaks to the same idea, you know. Um, and I just, I'm feeling really grateful right now for, um, you (laughs) and these ideas that you just are bringing forward through the podcast because they're, they're both like comforting and hope giving, you know, and I know you do know, I know you do know that it, it can feel so hopeless and scary. Um, but to think of them, to reframe them in these terms, just thank you. And I'm excited. And I put all three of those podcasts in my queue this morning. So um, I can't wait to listen to them. And then as we close out, I wanted to, I'm just going to invite you to briefly tell people what the Million Redwoods Project is. And then kind of the big closing question that I'm going to give to you right now. So you can just run is like, what is your highest vision for your work? Like if it is wildly successful beyond your dreams, what will it have accomplished? 
Uh, it was a big meat. Okay. I will think about that as I uh, <laughs> view some stuff on the million. So the Redwoods Project is, oh, goodness. Okay. It's very, okay, I, I want to I speak of it to it quickly, but thoroughly. So it is a way to, okay, all right, hold on, because oh, I want to get really wordy. And no, I well, I'm, all, um, I'm not in a hurry. It. I'm not in a hurry. You okay. are the one who has something to do after this, so go, on, go at your own pace. Okay. Oh, good, okay, okay, then I can start to breathe in a little more. Okay. So, um. To, to back it up, I, obviously a fierce lover of the forest, I had spent a lot of time between old growth, clear cut, second growth, third growth, and I was constantly talking to the forest and asking them, how, what can we do about this? Like, how can us humans support you in your regeneration? Mix that in with climate change, mix that in with the Anthropocene extinction, losing 200 species a day. I'm I having knowledge that the biodiversity of these places are really dwindling, and um, and so I was sitting with these questions because I was so in in love with these places. And I at one point the forest came to me in a moment when I was at the confluence of these two waterways where I live, and they said, um, "Protect us and and plant our children." And so for the next, you know, what has this been like five, six years, I've literally been like, how do I protect you and, and plant your children and support the next generation of your communities? And so with that question, I went into knowing that I wanted to plant trees, but it wasn't enough to plant trees. Uh, I also wanted to focus on the understory plants. And I knew that wasn't enough because I also knew the fungi needed to be a part of it because I was really looking at reforestation through a holistic lens. And then the more that I was working with intersectional climate, environmental, and social justice, I was like, well, I also know that it needs to be connected to the community that's living in those places and to have indigenous consultation so that it's not just another white savior project. And so I've been kind of in this tornado of learning and pushing away and bringing in different ideas, different ways of forestry or, or of, of working within forestry and reforestation because what was a real big bummer is I had so much excitement to do for reforestation and I studied restoration ecology and and then I realized throughout the process that the reforestation or restoration industrial complex is alive and well and I didn't even think that that existed because I was like well what's bad about planting trees that's just, just seemed like anything, it's all good. Well, what could possibly be bad about this? And then, yeah, I realized that so much of reforestation has been created by the logging industry. So the way that millions of acres are being reforested in the moment have been created by industrial systems that want to extract. So you could just imagine if those are the people and those are the models that are creating the systems for regeneration, it's probably not that regenerative. And so I have been trying to push against that. And we want to work in a big way, but I also know that working locally and working communally is really the way forward in my belief system. So how do I balance those two? So at this point, you know, I've been, I'm, I'm, uh, 
I don't even know, neck in, neck deep. I've been doing a lot of work with the for reforestation initiatives and building a living library or a native, I call it a living library, but it, otherwise you could call it a native species nursery where I live. And uh, just in the past couple weeks, I've been doing probably, oh gosh, thousands of um, clippings for propagation of different native species, whether that's black cap raspberries, willows, redwoods. Um, and I've been cloning redwoods, which I kind of didn't know about at the beginning because I was really focused on the seed. But the germination rate is so small. But what logging companies will do with redwoods, for instance, is they'll clone the the cloning mechanisms are really um, they're not genetically diverse. So you could imagine if there was like thousands of acres of a cloned forest with a few different types of trees. Over time, that's really not going to mm-hmm. give the diversity would need to withstand any kind of issues with climate change or things like that. So I've been going out into the woods and looking for trees and plants that are growing on like rocky hillsides or growing with very little soil even. Because I know that most likely these areas will get drier and drier. And so picking plants out for climate um, climate resilience has been an important part of the project. But yeah, it's it's been so, it's been really humbling to work with plants in this way because again like these relationships take time and it takes time to learn how to go about it with integrity and not just blaze through it with all this urgency and quickness and making decisions that I don't want to disrupt the forest I don't want to make a fast decision about some kind of genetics of a tree and then realize that that could have um repercussions down the line and I think that there have been a lot of repercussions to how we've been doing forestry as uh, as a whole so yeah the project is beautiful and it's very deep and it's a different type of way of working with the forest and I feel like kind of like my prayer is that I could be an herbalist for the earth and an herbalist for the forest and go in with medicines and slowness and relationship and really learn how to go into either highly devastated areas that mining or logging has occurred or areas that have been logged or mined within previous years and give boost of biodiversity through the understory and the fungi and plant more trees that will sequester more carbon for climate um, for, for climate stabilization and yeah so a little bit of a messy answer there but it's a really it's a very challenging project, much more challenging than the podcast is for me. And I just keep showing up every day. And it's, um, yeah, it has felt so good to, like we were talking about at the beginning of the show, so much of the work with the Redwoods. There was a lot of land work at the beginning, but then it became a lot of computer work with coordination and research and data collection. And so the fact that I've gotten to be outside the last two weeks as spring is coming and work mm. with propagation, a, a miracle. Mm-hmm. So, um, um, and remind me how much, how much did you get on the, the Kickstarter for that? Cause that was like just one of those beautiful, incredibly successful Kickstarter campaigns I contributed. It's just like, I mean, even just the minute I saw the name, I was like, oh, yes. <laughs> you know, oh, Ayana's doing something called One Million Redwoods. <laughs> I will be donating. Um, but it was clearly so well done and so well-researched. And um, a project with so much potential 
um, that every, people were just stoked mm-hmm. to do it. And I loved watching how that Kickstarter unfolded. It's, that Kickstarter was amazing. Again, it was like seat of the pants, just just going for it, going off spirit. Um, so we were we made I think it was like one hundred and twenty four thousand ninety nine, and then you know Kickstarter takes their twelve percent. Uh-huh. Um, so a, a, a hundred thousand bucks, and um, yeah, and it's it's been really instrumental in doing what we've been able to do do so far and it's felt so right to not because you know the thing is like with that money like if I wasn't really thinking things through I could have squandered that really quickly in the first six months of the project and decide yeah I'm gonna buy all these pots like pots alone could have cost me three hundred thousand dollars just to buy the pots that are created for forestry you know so I've been really frugal and I've been really thoughtful and um I've just, you know, it's, it's really challenging the dominant narrative of um, bulldozing through projects at any cost. And for me, the thoughtfulness and going, wait a minute, like this doesn't make sense or this doesn't feel right. I'm going to not walk forward. I'm going to stay right where I am. And I'm going to look into this more. And I'm going to ask people that I trust before I take the next move. And that has felt really good. And it's felt really challenging because like I said, you know, this culture just wants us to do, do, do all the time and be successful and be big and be su- and go, go, go and not stop and have, you know, have results right away. And it's like, well, what would it actually take to have results right away? Like what, what would that actually entail to be able to have something like that? And so I've had to deal with my own ego and also really work with the pace and the timing of the forest and say, no, actually, the more, um, in order for me to have the most integrity I need to have, um, I really need to be extremely focused on how to do every single step of this project. And so even like for a year, I did trials on different pots and it was crazy. And I was like, oh my gosh, I just want to be doing something else. Like why? But I was like, no, because am I going to buy a million pots for $340,000 that are going to last five to seven years and then all go to a landfill? Or I'm gonna, am I going to use these, these pots that I thought were going to be great from France that were, um, they were, they were made with uh, thinned spruce trees or something. And then they fell apart, you know, like they, they couldn't hold up to being watered. And so there's all these things that, um, that have gone into the project that have been frustrating. But ultimately at this point, I feel really excited because I found we've like we've made like 10 different tools um, that we've been testing out to create basically like in soil pots. So we are like it compacts the soil into the ground and pushes and compacts the clay around it so that we don't have to use pots, which I'm so excited about. And we're not importing soil, which I didn't want to do because. Potting soil, like the perlite and the lava rock, that's all mined from somewhere. Like, why am I going to destroy a mountain somewhere else in Hawaii so that I can have, like, a nursery in the redwoods? It doesn't make sense. Like, this is what I'm talking about. It's like, this doesn't, this is not, this isn't, doesn't make sense. And so um, it's pretty exciting to see these redwoods now growing in these in-ground pots that also take a lot less water because pots evaporate like crazy, you know, black pot in the sun. It's like you water and you need more water. So, um, that's so cool. Ayana. 
Um, you know, that's what like really, that's what successful people do is they innovate the solutions to their problems as they go along, you know, like, so that's amazing that you're doing that. And I'm curious, are you, um, are you like doing updates on the project as you go? Like things like this, like, I'm sure my husband is going to hear this and be like, I need to see these in-ground pot things. What is Ayana doing out there? (laughs) I'm going to get better at that. I have, I started to do some Instagram stories about it and a few updates through Kickstarter, but I was actually just thinking that the other day because I was um, talking to a friend who was helping me. I'm like, you know, I really want to share this stuff because a lot of organizations, they don't share all the trials and tribulations. They're just like, here's the campaign. And now however many years later, here's what we did. Mm -hmm. And they don't tell you about all of the roller coaster that it took to do that. And the thing is, I actually want people to know the roller coaster because ultimately I want I want a lot of people to be growing plants. I want a lot of people to be planting trees. Like this is not like, like the, the, the point is like, this needs to spread. Like I want more people to be working with the land in this way. And so I was thinking, yeah, I'd like to actually be able to share this information so that people can learn from, and they don't have to spend a year looking at certain things and polypipe and all the crazy (laughs) crap that industrial industry like sells to you is like this is the way you have to do it and I've read through all the manuals and I ra- I'd love to be able to tell people like hey this is this is what I did this is what I looked at learn from this and make it your own yeah um, and I'm important. totally open source yeah um okay it so you, yeah <laughs> I can't wait to see how you're doing it um you have another interview in 10 minutes so give us your highest vision and then we'll get going yeah yeah, yeah. um okay so the highest vision for for the wild. Hmm. Well, in terms of the Redwoods project, I see millions of trees and plants and acres not only being replenished, but also protected through local community organizing. And I can imagine walking through the places that have been protected and healed by humans <laughs> um, and all of the ways in which the plants work together and the symbiosis of that. So I definitely see, I see a lot of land protected and revitalized and, and being strong as we go into times that will be very uncertain with the climate. And I, and that would be, Gosh, yeah, getting getting millions of trees and plants into the ground and being able to do it in places that will be protected and will have some type of legal standing that they will not get cut down into the future would be my greatest success. Um, I'm also working on a campaign in Alaska to stop a mining project on the Copper River Delta. So success would look like raising the funds and putting a really strong conservation easement in place where the title of the land would be held by the native conservancy. And, um, and I, I definitely see that happening. I've had vision saying it will, so I'm going to keep following that thread. And with the podcast, I wanted to be a beacon for people who um, are feeling lonely and feeling lost and feeling like they want to connect to people 
um, and connect to these narratives that aren't easily found through media or even maybe through their communities. I know a podcast for some folks who have written in, um, they're like, thank you. You know, like where I live, nobody wants to talk about this stuff. And I feel so ostracized. I feel like the sad kid, or I feel like the person who nobody wants to hear from. <laughs> and I love that for the wild could be a web for folks. And, and that's a, a huge success for me. And, um, and also just being able to do digital community organizing digitally and, and on the ground. And that, that's success to me to be able to be uh, a weaver of people and say, hey, like, you know, we hear your story and we know that you need help and we're going to do whatever we can on our end to direct people to to helping. Because I think it's like when we know ways that we can help, there's a type of fulfillment and ease that comes with that. It's like we can put our creativity and our energy and our love and our vibrancy and our passion into supporting uh, causes that we care about and we need to know about those causes and so i think the more that for the wild can direct people to projects and folks that need that support that's going to be a huge success but you know i never want for the wild to be a greenpeace or sierra club i never want to be that big i really always want to stay small and nimble and flexible and grassroots i never want to take corporate money i never want to become um, tied up in some bigger entity i always want to stay independent and so yeah it's like really questioning what is what does success look like for, how, how to how to be successful and also small at the same time and also slow at the same time and also full of integrity and and all of that so to me it's like just really, really feeding the respect um, of the work and the relationships. And, um, and then, you know, being able to, to keep things funded. I mean, that's definitely what, what, I, what I love about Two for the Wild. It's not like we're not trying to make money so that we can just keep making money just to keep making money. You know, where I feel like a lot of corporations, it's just like the, the whole idea is just to continue making money always. Where for us, it's like, we just need to make enough money to like pay people to keep doing the work so they can keep paying rent and put food on the table. And so I think, um, I do feel really grateful that we've been able to garner enough support at this point where we can keep going on the week to week. And um, and so, yeah, I'd say success is uh, is is to keep going in a way that feels regenerative, healthy, and connective, and um, and all the other stuff that I mumbled earlier. <laughs> mm -hmm. Okay, uh, thank you so much, Ayana. Uh, so is it forthewild.org? Forthewild.world. World. I knew it was something different. And, of course, the podcast was For the Wild and Instagram For the Wild. Um, yeah, thank you so much. And you do, you have to read the overstory and it's, it's a must. It's a must. And that, that goes for you too, listener. I, I never recommend novels, but I am recommending this novel to you all. Um, okay. Ayana, it's just such an honor and a blessing to, to 
speak to you and to see your face for the first time in so long, not in a in a still frame on Instagram. Um, thank you. Yeah, yeah thank you. Thank you for taking these medicine stories in. I hope they inspire you to keep walking the mythic path of your own unfolding self. I love sharing information and will always put any relevant links in the show notes. You can find past episodes, my blog, and our handmade herbal medicines at mythicmedicine.love. We've got reishi, lion's mane, elderberry, mugwort, yarrow, redwood, body oils, an amazing sleep medicine, heart medicine, earth essences, so much more, more than I can list there, mythicmedicine.love. While you're there, check out my quiz, which healing herb is your spirit medicine? It's fun and lighthearted, but the results are really in-depth and designed to bring you into closer alignment with both the medicine that you're in need of and the medicine that you already carry and can bring to others. If you love the show, please consider supporting it at patreon.com slash medicine stories. It is so worth your while. There are dozens and dozens of killer rewards there, and I've been told by many folks that it's the best Patreon out there. We've got ebooks, downloadable PDFs, bonus interviews, guided meditations, giveaways, resource guides, links to online learning and behind the scenes stuff, and just so much more. The best of it is available at the $2 a month level. Thank you. And please subscribe on whichever app you use. Just click that little subscribe button and review on iTunes. It's so helpful. And if you do that, you just may be featured in a listener spotlight in the future. The music that opens the show is by Marie Sue. That's M-A-R-I-E-E. S-I-O-U-X from her beautiful song, Wild Eyes. Thank you, Marie. And thanks to you all. I look forward to next time.